Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, and I'm Simon Long, the international editor here at The Economist. Coming up on today's show, how prepared is the insurance market for the risks of the future? The insurance industry, sadly enough, has not moved very far, very fast. There are things happening on the margin, but the incumbents of the industry remains, by and large, plodding dinosaurs. And as we celebrate England's close-fought win in the Cricket World Cup, we ask why are tie breaks so important? If you spent two weeks or even longer if you're watching the cricket, pouring all of your heart into seeing your team play, you come see them in the final and it's a dead heat. That's not going to please many paying punters. But first, figures released this week show China's economy is slowing. Almost anywhere else, GDP growth of 6.2%, which China chalked up between April and June, would be seen as super hot. In China, it was the lowest quarterly growth rate since 1992. The trade war with America would seem an obvious reason, but there may be other factors at work here too. Simon Rubinovich is The Economist's Asia economics editor. Hello, Simon. Hi, Simon. Those of us who follow your Twitter feed, which I think all Money Talks listeners should do, know that you've pointed out that this headline, slowest growth in 30 years, is not exactly a novelty. That's right. But the bigger point about this being not terribly novel as far as the headline goes is that, you know, for the last really five years, China has been going through uh, an incremental slowdown and it's coming off three decades of superlative growth. And so it's fairly predictable as far as headlines go. But nevertheless, of course, these are important milestones to note. I guess the bigger picture is that you've had this massively long boom. But when you look at the rate of the slowdown, it really is quite incremental. So it looks more like a soft landing than a hard landing at this point. And that would suggest, I suppose, that what we're seeing is a secular trend rather than any immediate repercussions from the trade dispute with the US. And in fact, I saw one analysis pointing out that in these figures, net exports were a bigger contributor to Chinese growth than in any quarter since 2009. Now, the caveat there is it's not that Chinese exports have been doing well. In fact, they're flat. You know, to America, they're down. Globally, they're flat. But because there's weakness in the domestic economy, imports are down even more. And so then the result is that when you look at the composition of GDP, it looks like trade in net terms is contributing. But really, that's just a, a sign that the domestic weakness is having an impact more generally. But that then leads to the point that you've raised, which is that although there's lots and lots of discussion and concern about the trade war, really the thing that has been weighing more on the economy is a made-in-China slowdown. You know, the government dealing with problems that have been racked up in the past, especially excessive debt, beginning to tighten financial flows 
and that then having a knock-on impact on domestic growth. And is the slowdown uniform across all parts of the Chinese economy, as it were, or are there bits that are hurting worse than others? There are both bits that are hurting more than others and also places that are hurting more than others. So parts of the economy that are geared towards heavy industry and especially to the commodities trade have had a pretty rough five years. You know, some of them are effectively in recession with no immediate sign of recovery. Parts of the country that are geared more towards high tech industries to innovation, they are doing better. So in fact, one of the trends which is now playing out in China is that the wealthier parts of the country, especially the southern part of the coastal region, are now outpacing much of the rest of the country. In the past, China's responded to slowdowns with a big fiscal stimulus, most famously, of course, during the global financial crisis, but ever since as well. Is that on the cards this time, or do those concerns about the financial sector you mentioned preclude that? The concerns definitely limit the extent to which they'd be willing to stimulate the economy. And the other point, of course, as we've established so far, is that the slowdown has not been so dramatic. So ultimately, as long as the employment picture holds up, the government is going to be reluctant to stimulate. Now, all that said, the expectation is that the trade war will begin to have more of an impact on Chinese growth, that the second half will look softer. Domestic drivers of growth, one of the key ones is the property sector. Sales of new properties have begun to slow. That should have an impact on investment and construction activity. So the government will be under pressure to do more to support growth. But because of the debt problems, it will look like a much more modest stimulus than the ones that we had seen in the past decade. Turning back to the trade war, we did see Donald Trump and Xi Jinping reach some sort of a truce in the G20 meetings at Osaka. How much progress have we seen since towards a resolution of the disputes? We haven't seen much progress at all. Now, the reason I hesitate a little bit is that the trade talks have gone quieter. For the first year of the trade talks, there was quite a lot of leaks and there hasn't been as much now. So the best guess is that progress is moving really, really slowly, partly because both economies are apparently in reasonably good shape right now. And so there's not an urgent need to come to a compromise. Neither of the two countries is willing to really stand down. China itself is taking a much harder line. When the trade talks broke down in May, there was a feeling in China that America was asking too much from China and effectively infringing on its sovereignty. And based on the latest growth data from China, the government is really not panicked. And given that they feel that this politically has become such a serious issue for them, almost a liability if they're seen to give in too much to America, there is apparently much more willingness to take a harder line and to hold out for a while longer. So we'll have to see. I mean, the one area that the truce between Presidents Trump and Xi was supposed to focus on initially was to allow Huawei, the big Chinese telecoms company, to start importing more products from America. But so far, what we've seen from America is that any licenses given to American companies to sell products to Huawei are going to be very, very limited, not the full lift that China was hoping for. And Huawei itself, I think, has announced cuts in its US operations. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, they just announced this week that they would cut back on staffing and R&D, especially in the US. The broader subtext to the trade war is not so much just the tariffs on this product or that product, but the question of whether these two economies that over the last few decades have become deeply integrated, whether they can begin to move towards a decoupling. And Huawei, in that sense, 
seems to be something of a bellwether, but certainly the trend seems to be moving in that direction. Turning back to the overall growth rate, it still falls within the Chinese government's target range of 6 to 6.5%, doesn't it? So will we be having exactly this conversation again in three months' time, Simon, that we're at the slowest growth rate in 30 years, but it's still not a great concern to the Chinese government? Certainly the first part of that statement is likely to be true. I think that growth in the third quarter will be even slower than in the second quarter because of the trade war, because of the property slowdown. As you mentioned, the growth target for this year is between 6 and 6.5%. You know, Cynics would say it doesn't matter what the economy actually does. They're guaranteed to hit that target because they'll make sure the data says they've hit it. But the range of other activity indicators out there suggest that they'll be testing the bottom of that target pretty soon. It could well be that in three months' time, that discussion about are they willing to undertake a stimulus, what kind of stimulus will they actually apply to the economy, that will be getting a lot more attention. So I think they will begin to get a little more uncomfortable with the slowdown as it deepens and continues. And certainly if, in fact, Donald Trump ratchets up tariffs on China, then the external headwinds will only get stronger as well. Simon Rubinovich, thanks very much. My pleasure. And you can read more on this in the forthcoming edition of The Economist. Why not try a subscription at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Next, the insurance industry makes its money from understanding risk, predicting disaster, and knowing how much the damage is going to cost. But those risks are changing, with climate change producing even greater uncertainty and new dangers emerging, like threats to cybersecurity. But are the companies who've dominated the industry so far keeping up with the times? Mathieu Favard is The Economist's finance correspondent. Mathieu, Every industry on the planet has been grappling in recent years with AI, artificial intelligence, digitization, with a revolution in the way things are done. How about insurance? The insurance industry, sadly enough, has not moved very far, very fast. There are things happening on the margin, but the incumbents of the industry remains, by and large, plodding dinosaurs. A lot of platforms that sell insurance policies still not very fast. And then a number of products that don't actually respond anymore to the needs of people who have changing ways of life. And yet the impression one has, anecdotally at least, is that the world out there is getting riskier. There are more and more natural disasters. Climate change is likely to mean there will be even more. The whole range of new risks, terrorism, cyber risks and so on. And the industry is really not adapting to meet this change? That's right. The timing is incredibly good for the industry to think about these questions and to really move ahead because it's faced with a sort of three-pronged challenge. One is new risks that they are facing, as you said, bigger natural catastrophes. So that is causing bigger and more damages. If you look back at the 1980s, the average losses caused by natural disasters every year was about $30 billion. In the last decade, it averaged $190 billion a year. And then you have new risks like cyber risk, political risk, which are harder to understand. Then the nature of what they need to protect is changing too. So if you look at the value of the companies of the S&P 500, the largest companies in the world, 84% of the values of these companies is now accounted for by intangible assets. So things like reputation and intellectual property. Only 14% is, is tangible stuff, so equipment, machinery. And intangible assets are really hard to value and protect. But there's a paradox here, isn't there, that on the one hand, you're describing a world which has sort of run out of control compared to the way the insurance business model works and the insurers failing to adapt. And yet, they're still there. 
they're still surviving, they're still making profits? In a way, you know, consumers don't have a massive amount of choice because contrary to banking, for example, where you're starting to see a lot of new banks which offer a much better product, frankly, because it tend to be cheaper and just uh, easier to use. We haven't really seen that in the insurance industry. We, we've seen a few startups, you know, which cover a number of niches. But in terms of the core insurance products like motor insurance, all this is still stuck a bit in the past. We've been talking so far about the consumer end of the business, but what about reinsurance? Is that similarly ossified? On one hand, they have pressure to innovate. And on the other hand, they face less red tape. They have smaller management teams. And they have capital. So actually, they've been quite active. So meaning Cree, the largest reinsurer on the planet, is probably leading in that field, built quite a sizable team to, to focus on innovation. It's doing what uh, its innovation chief calls uh, fuck-up nights, where, where people are encouraged to speak about their failures. In general, there is spirit within the company to try things. And on the other hand, you have reinsurers focusing on new products and new innovative forms of insurance. Could I also ask you about China? Because in fintech, in a number of areas, China is far ahead of the rest of the world. It's hard to believe that the insurance industry there has not adapted as well to the explosion of mobile phone technologies. So what we've seen is that insurers in Asia and in China in particular has leapfrogged ahead of Western peers. Western experts think they are probably 15 years ahead in terms of technology. So Ping'an, for example, has invested about 1% of its revenue in innovation. So the scale of investment is enormous. And what they've achieved is also quite significant. So they've cut down underwriting times down from, I think, five days to 15 minutes. So it's working very well. There are some slightly more controversial sides to it where they use special recognition to police their agents. But it is definitely there where insurance firms are proving the most dynamic right now. China may be 15 years ahead, but there must be some firms in the West Metro which are in this space doing something interesting. Yes, there, there, are, there are a few examples. And, and one that comes to mind is Vitality, as it is known in our market, Discovery elsewhere. It's a health insurance company, so it rewards its customers for good health-conscious behavior. So, for example, if you exercise and, and, um, and this is being tracked by your watch or any wearable that you have on yourself, the company will reward you with points that you can spend either to decrease the premiums that you're paying or that you can use towards something else entirely, so for example, to buy plane tickets or to get discount at the gym. So I spoke to Adrian Gore, its chief executive, and I started by asking him how he got the idea for an insurance system that rewards healthy behavior. We started out as a health insurer in South Africa, just in the era of Nelson Mandela and the fall of apartheid. And the issue was how you create a health insurance company where you've got terrible levels of disease burden, too few doctors, and very complex regulation around no discrimination. This was before the understanding of behavioral economics, but it was just the idea that could we make people healthier? If you could do that, you could reduce the demand for healthcare, lower mortality costs, etc. You know, there's just three lifestyle choices people make that drive 60% of deaths, smoking, poor nutrition, physical inactivity. And so we started to learn academically the power of incentives and built that into insurance. Can you give us a few more examples of incentives that you provide or you offer to customers, how they work in practice? Doing things are good for your health, get you vitality points that earn your status from bronze through to platinum, and you get discounts through these different statuses. So you get discounts on flights, you get discounts on travel. Critically, you pay less for insurance. So you think about buying a life insurance policy, and that can cost you £100 a month or whatever it might be. You're paying 10 20% less for 20 or 30 years. The volume of that saving is dramatic. How do you prevent cheating? One customer could perhaps lend it to someone who does a bit more running to try and earn more points. We're developing a lot of AI and technology and understanding almost 
how heartbeats look. We've developed a lot of really good technology to know that people are doing what they should be doing. But we have seen with those kinds of things on the margin, people do cheat. <laughs> but to an extent, I think that we're learning how to stop that. We're learning how to curtail it. We're learning how to design the benefits that we don't get that. And I think overall, we're pretty comfortable in the main. We're getting really good, solid results absent the cheating. Do you face any questions around privacy or, or any reaction from customers about you know, perhaps not wanting to be watched or tracked all the time? We're pretty clear. We never use data without consent. Data is used in a depersonalized way, and it's only used for good. But we've never got from customers any revulsion on using the data. They see the benefit of it. It's good for them. It's good for their health. And then I think the regulations like GDPR, those kinds of developments around the world, kind of creates a standard we are very careful to make sure we maintain. I was thinking the other day that when you incentivize people to exercise more, potentially they could get injured more too. Have you noticed any effects of that nature? Generally, we haven't seen that. If you look across the healthcare bill, you often do get some bubbling in certain areas of primary care, but then you get savings on the hospital care side. So overall, for a society, it is dramatically better. I'd argue for the health of the individual, it's better. We try best to guide people to exercise in the right way. The incentives and structures, for example, in active rewards are risk-based. So we look at the person's underlying risk factors, and therefore we tailor it specifically to their needs. So these things are carefully done. Are you worried at all that perhaps at some point big tech, like Apple, Google, Amazon, will be able to become insurers in themselves? Big tech we've always seen as an enabler. The Vitality platform is a technology platform. That's really what it is. But for sure, these big tech companies have that potential. I think our goal is to make sure we have a platform that's relevant, regardless of how that plays out. So behavioral economics and technology have created the ability to do this. You know, you couldn't have done this 30 years ago. So we're pretty clear. We see technology as an enabler. Will the big tech companies do this themselves? It's possible. Um, I hope we'd make good partners in that regard. Adrian Gore, thank you very much. Thank you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And finally, in some parts of the world at least, you, like me, might have spent your Sunday on the edge of your seat watching the Cricket World Cup final an absolutely astonishing and nail-biting game that England won, though even we fans here would have to admit they scarcely deserved to. It finished in a controversial tie-break. Behavioural economics, backed by experience, suggests that the team which goes first has an advantage. So how fair is it to end a game like this? The economist Bo Franklin has been investigating. Hello, Bo. Hello, Simon. Firstly, of course, that wasn't the only tie-break we saw this weekend. Can you tell me about... The other one and that one, indeed. Yeah, so after almost five hours of tennis at Wimbledon, just 10 miles to the south of Lords, where the Cricket World Cup final was going on, Novak Djokovic beat Roger Federer in a marathon match, which finished in a fifth-set tie-break. But even though there was a tie-break, it was still the longest singles final in Wimbledon history. And the cricket one was the first ever, right? I, yes. I think a lot of us watching, it was completed in something called a super over, which I had never heard of mm. before. So after a day's worth of 50 overs each side, the two sides were still tied. So England and New Zealand went to a super over, which is six more balls each. And after that, they were still tied. So they had to go and decide the eventual result of the match. 
by looking at who'd hit the boundary more times over the course of the day, which happened to be England. This is the moment. It's Archer to Guptill. Two to win. Guptill's going to push for two. They've got to go. It's gone through. It's got to go to the keeper's end. He's got it. England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins. So how much of this obsession with coming to a result rather than letting it finish in a tie is about giving the fans what they want? Well, when you think of a big tournament such as the Cricket World Cup or Wimbledon, if you spent two weeks or even longer if you're watching the cricket, pouring all of your heart into seeing your team play, you come see them in the final and it's a dead heat, that's not going to please many paying punters. So a lot of it comes down to getting a result from one of the biggest tournaments in the world. And letting the losing side go home disappointed. Yes, obviously there's going to be tears, but also jubilation. But how much of this is about the business of sport, about the media companies that provide most of the money that goes into sport now? Well, tie breaks in tennis are interesting. They were first introduced in Grand Slam tournaments with the US Open in 1970, and that was after a marathon match the year before at Wimbledon. But a lot of that came down to the fact that TV audiences were growing and the matches just needed to be shorter. And when you look at cricket, fast-paced, shorter formats such as T20 and one-day cricket, which is the form that's played in the World Cup, are becoming increasingly popular because they are quicker, snappier. And for that to take place, you need an exciting result as well. But, but why are tiebreaks seen as unfair? We mentioned one reason that the side going first statistically seems to have an advantage. Are there others? Usually the tiebreak measures that decide a game aren't a good reflection of a team's performance or an individual's performance across the whole game. If you look at what won the Cricket World Cup, it was the fact that England scored more boundaries. But that doesn't necessarily mean they played better overall. They could have fielded much worse. It's just an arbitrary measure. And in football, penalty shootouts are notoriously a poor judge of who was better in the game itself. Yes, although it's better than the measure that was used in the 1954 World Cup, in which Turkey got put through to the final stages by an Italian boy pulling their name out of a hat wearing a blindfold. <laughs> Golden goals, though. I mean, that had a certain appeal, didn't it? It did, it did. But they've gone the way of the dodo slightly and penalty shootouts have become a more crowd-pleasing way of deciding the results of a football match. Well, Franklin, thank you very much. Thanks, Simon. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. If you enjoyed it, please do take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Simon Long in London. This is The Economist.